Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Business Leader Insight brought to you today by our sponsor, First Team. Uh, Business Leader is UK's leading B2B media platform and we have a print magazine, live and virtual events network and a website that is updated daily with news and insight. For those of you who don't know about Business Leader, please do visit us at www.businessleader.co.uk. This live interview series is seeing us bring inspiring business figures and for today's interview we're speaking to Pete Lowe. Pete is an ex-Manchester City football coach, company director, and now a speaker and leadership consultant. We'll talk to Pete for around 20 to 30 minutes and do check out the Business Leader website to find out more about our events. So we'll kick off uh, and we'll welcome Pete. Good morning, Ollie. Yeah, good morning. Nice to have you with us. And great to be here. Thank you. We'll we'll start, Pete, if you can just give us a brief overview of of, of your career. (laughs) How long you got, Ollie? Um, (laughs) Okay, I mean, originally years ago, I was a teacher. I was a PE teacher. And in, in those very well, weren't brief days, I was a PE teacher for a number of years. And then I found myself in, um, in the world of representative football in schools football, which was then more important, than, believe it or not, than club football. Um, and because I got to reach a fairly senior level in that, I, I found myself being um, asked to go into professional football by Oldham Athletic. Um, and that became a full time. I originally went in uh, part time in 92 and then full time in 97. I left teaching behind in 97, went into professional football full time and held various positions of um, uh, centre of excellence director responsible for schoolboy coaching, if you like. And then um, uh, director of youth development at that club, then moved to Manchester City in July of 2000. And that was my last football club. So huge changes at Manchester City in that period of time. And um, we always worked with young players, predominantly up to the age of originally 19, and then it was 21. So uh, that, that was where my work was conducted, Ollie. Okay, no, thanks. Uh, you mentioned uh, Manchester City Football Club there. I mean, a huge, huge club now. I mean, I guess you would have been there when, when the takeover happened. What, what was yeah. the impact of that on the club? And for, for those that don't know... Uh, Manchester City was bought by Emirati billionaires and is arguably the, the richest kind of a club in the world now, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, I would say so. Um, it's a great question, actually, Ollie, because, um, you know, the football is now, it, it's now uh, littered with quite wealthy owners. That's the world that we're in now, plain and simple. And I think what the first thing that that does is it highlights that football is a business. It's not just a game. It's a business. But the business is very much affected by the results of the game. You can't divorce the two. They're both the same thing. But they had a profound effect to to Manchester City. I mean, obviously, there was an immediate injection of cash to actually change the status of the company, change the image of the company, which I think all Manchester City fans in particular would all agree. That's been a phenomenal change around. You know, they've now become a power in world football. And yes, at some stage... They'll, win ta- they'll have to win the Champions League to define that status, if you like. But they will, because it's just an education, that. It's a process of education, of learning how to do that job, um, and of becoming winners on the very biggest stage, if you like. Um, but the owners also had, you know, with what they did at the football club, it had a profound effect on the community of Manchester City, for the want of a better way of saying it. Because a large part of Manchester, there are Manchester City fans. You know, a very large part of Manchester City fans. In the old days before the Etihad Stadium, when they were at the at the main road stadium, you know, they had 36,000 walk through the turnstiles every two weeks. 
you know, religiously, by the way, even when things weren't very good, they religiously walked through those gates. Mm. Manchester City's always been a very strong community club. And I think that um, it brought, to a very large degree, the club very closer to the community. And that's a great thing. It has to be a great thing. On that, on that point, Pete, I mean, people often see the injection of cash. That means new players chasing for titles. But I just want to get your insight into the impact it had off the field in terms of, like you say, that community and the creation of jobs and, and just the positive impact sports cl sports clubs can have in that sense. Yeah, there's a, <clears throat> I mean, those types of things are very underwritten because they're not glamorised. What I mean by that is it doesn't sell papers or news articles or whatever that might be. Clubs will always spend large sums of money on players today because the markets are more open than they ever were before. So players are accessible to football clubs, providing, of course, they stick within the regulations of registering those players. In addition to that, obviously, they're competing against each other and they have to keep updating their ability levels within squads to be able to, to raise the bar for the one of a better way of saying it. But the bar's been raised away from the away from um, uh, the pitch as well. Also, Manchester City's become a very professionally run organisation. It's a huge organisation. I think when I when I left there, it had nine hundred full time and part time employees. I think that's the right number. That's pretty significant, that Ollie. So you know, even people who might not have worked there full time had an association with the club on a part-time employee capacity, if you like. And that in itself um, generates even greater loyalty from the, the city of Manchester. The other thing that I think is very underwritten as well, by the way, the other side of the city, the red side, who set unbelievable standards in the time of Sir Alex, unbelievable standards. You know, um, I'm not saying that's now been matched by Manchester City because it hasn't yet. They have to match those those records that those guys on the other side of the city created. But they've now created a level power base. So Manchester has just gone poof as, as a, a football city and a business city. It's just had a profound effect. You know, businesses wanted, want to be associated with Manchester City. So they bring sponsorship into it because they uh, have the standards that they want their businesses to portray. So... It's more than just football. It's dominated by football because football creates the standards. Mm. And it will do. It always will. No, thanks, Pete. I just want to, one final question on, on, on sort of Manchester City football. Um, you know, the, the FA and the Premier League have, have, have kind of been quite vocal about the impact of coronavirus uh, on, 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 on the league football structure. But there's some that argue that, you know, should they get the help and funding considering the, the, the wealth in football? I just want to get your insight into that and, and, and what, what, where you see that. Uh, the effect of coronavirus on football, you know, is profound. It's absolutely profound because football is a part of life at the end of the day. It's a business which is part of society. You know, it employs people and, and it has had a huge, a huge effect. Um, the wealthy clubs are incredibly wealthy. They get the lion's share of what is the, the um, TV contracts via the Premier League's um, negotiations with cable companies, etc. Um, they get the lion's share of that. If football wants to have a real football family, Ollie, it genuinely, you know, they talk about this football family. Now is the time that they've actually got to demonstrate that there is a football family. So you can't just talk the talk now. You've got to walk the walk.
plain and simple. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very direct in saying that if if the top line clubs want to have a football family and the continuation of Division One and Division Two, to some extent, they're going to have to find a way to be able to support those clubs, because I would imagine some of those clubs are very close to liquidation at this moment in time. I just want to um, switch now to, to, to your current business. You, you're a kind of leadership and, and, and motivational uh, speaker and, and consultant. I just want to um, get your insight into what lessons from sport you feel can be translated into business. That's a brilliant question. That, uh, and I get asked that everywhere I go, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know what sport, uh, top line sport, by the way, and I'm talking about fantastically run organisations who have a record of creating winning what it does more than anything, um, uh, Ollie, is that it understands how to win. It, it sets a strategy to going out and going, we have to win this game. We have to um, progress towards Champions League football. We have to do as well as we can in the trophies. When I was in the academy, our initial um, brief, if you like, was, was to create players to, for the first team. And if they didn't play in the first team, would they be marketable products to move somewhere else for a transfer fee? That's the business side of football. People forget that. And, and we were charged with that. Um, it soon became obvious towards what the pressures were. It wasn't just about that. We also had to do it the right way. We had to generate the right image, win trophies like the FA Youth Cup, the FA Premier League youth titles and things like that. So we had to do things like that. There was a pressure on to do it. So you learn how to win, Ollie. And then what goes with that, what business could learn from this is that you have to influence mindsets daily, by the way. You can't just think people are going to do it just because they get paid to do a job. The question comes, and it's just a reflective question, what happens if they can't do it? And actually, they might be your best person. Are you going to get rid of them just because they can't do it? But they might be your best person in terms of talent. You've got to teach them how to do things. So you have to create a learning environment. Has to create a culture that's driven by a standard of performance. And that standard of performance is generated by uh, the chief executive or the board of directors, which they want it to do to, to operate the business to operate that way. Leaders underneath them have to operate via that standard of performance because everybody else under them is up, is up for grabs. So if one person doesn't do it right, the chain is broken. There's a there's a weak link in the chain. So it's about this process of um, understanding all the aspects that high, that goes to create a high performance culture, and I will say this on on the final bit for this is that people say to me, "You were in a performance background." Yes, I was. Here's the thing, Ollie. You're in a performance background. The chief executive is in a performance background. The man on the shop floor is in a performance background. Why? Because you've got to perform your job every single day of the week to the very highest standard, and if you're not then you become in a comfort zone dweller and you create complacency. And no, as thanks. they say in America, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> no, thanks, Pete. That's very interesting. I, 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 and you mentioned there the process, and I realise cr creating a winning mindset is a process. But if you were to come into a business, I mean, what, what are the kind of early signs where, where you can see there's some problems here? And, and how would you then kind of turn that around and start to sort of implement strategies where, where people can have that have that mindset? Can I give you an example of one without obviously mentioning the name? I walked into a fairly big business. No, it was a, a big business, uh, I don't know, three, four years ago, whatever it was now. And they had a wonderful um, setup and organization. Nobody wanted for anything. 
you know, everything was there. I mean, everybody worked in silos. Nobody spoke to each other. Everybody worked in their own offices. Nobody moved away from it. Everybody sent emails to somebody two, two, um, two yards away from them. Speak, communicate, generate relationships. And that was wanted by management, by chief execs. And, you know, the top guy spoke to me and said, you know, what do you think? So I gave him my opinions. So the first thing is about generating a team culture where everybody understands that they have a responsibility to everybody else. Now, a chief exec in a very big business can go, well, hold on a minute, we've got 5,000 employees. And my answer to him is, well, hold on a minute, you've got leaders directly underneath you, and they run teams. And in those teams, they're sub-leaders, if you like, that run subsections of teams. So you have to create this join where everybody knows that they're in it together. Alex Ferguson used to say at Man United, it's us against the world. It generated this you know, massive us against the world, if you like, um, mindset where they felt they were fighting against the world. So they had to set their own standards. But by doing so, they knew that unless they were all in it together, you know, the old musketeers thing, um, all for one, one for all, because that's absolutely what it is. You have to generate a team. So that would be the first the first thing, definitely. Well, thanks, Pete. And and obviously, what what's happened with coronavirus? We, you know, we've seen the transition of, of near ten million people kind of leave the office and and, and go to work remotely or at home. How do you, do you think that creates an uh, an issue in terms of creating that kind of winning mindset and, and team culture that you just talked about? No, I don't think it creates an issue. I think there is a there is a place now in this world now where we have to go. Stop. Get off the bus now. Stand in the middle of the street and decide which new bus you want to get on. And that new bus has to be a bus of innovation. We have to think differently. And that's what mindset is all about. We have to think differently. We have to go, are we working more profitably with people being at home than they were in the office? Um, when we get to a place whereby maybe everybody can go back into the office, are we going to bring everybody back into the office? Or actually, are we going to have, I don't know, set days where everybody comes into the office? And there's a, if you like, a hybrid organization. Um, so I, I think COVID has put us in a place, Ollie, where we have to think outside the box. It's going to be with us. It's not going away, this thing. Until they find a vaccine, um, which is going to, if you like, change uh, our health, pro our, our potential health processes, this thing's going to be with us. So we're in a place where we have to learn to innovate now and do things differently. Um, and, and, and basically, you know what? Using a very posh scientific phrase, have a growth mindset, you know, progressive mindset, survival mindsets are not going to do the job anymore. They're just not. No, I think that, that, that's, that's a really interesting uh, point. And you mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson uh, earlier and in, in, in the kind of, us against the world culture. I just want to get your kind of insight into what you feel are the traits that, that a good modern leader needs now. Well, that's a brilliant question. I mean, it really is a brilliant question. It's talked about so many times these days. I've, I've been asked that question. I mean, first and foremost, I think that um, a, leader, a top, top leader has, if you like, certain traits, one of which is he's authentic. He or she is authentic. They don't change. They don't change because the pressure around them is fantastic. They don't transmit their pressures to their people that work with them. They soak those pressures up. 
You know, Mandela used the phrase. He used to say, I used to stand at the back of the flock, letting the flock in front of me take responsibility and show direction. But they didn't know all along that I was always in control. I was just doing it quietly from the back. However, he said, when the flock were threatened and their welfare was, was potentially going to be in, in damage, I would go to the front and protect them. And it, it, it's a great way of looking at it. So he has to be authentic. He doesn't create blame cultures. He lets talent breed talent. He understands the changing room. And that's a really critical thing. And I'm using, a, obviously, a football um, a statement there. And I do use these things. I'm sorry. But, that you know, they're, they're, if you like, they're in my soul, for the want of a better way of saying it. 25 years of doing it, he ain't going away very quickly. Um, understanding the changing room is massive. Because if you've got a team of people in there, and let's say they are your boardroom of people, 20 people, you have to know each one of those. Every single bit about them that you know is unbelievably helpful to you. Um, husbands and wives' names, children's names, whether they've got a cat and a dog, believe it or not, you might think, hold on a minute, why? Because a cat and a dog passes away one day. And it's amazing how it affects performance for a moment in time. So you know everything that you can about those people. You know when, why, when their performance is dropping off at a tad, whatever it might be, what the reasons are for it. So a top leader's curious. People could say he's nosy. I was incredibly nosy, incredibly. I knew all of the players I worked with, trust me, I, in fact, they would tell you this. I knew so much about them that they had no idea I knew. I made it my business to know that. Um, and it was not nosiness in that sense. That gives you knowledge, and knowledge is a chip in the big game. It gives, you know, it's pennies from heaven, plain and simple. And when the pennies drop round your feet, by the way, don't ignore them. Pick them up and put them in your pocket, because those pennies equal knowledge. And knowledge. No, is that, oh, sorry, sorry, no, no, sorry. Thank you, Pete. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a bit nosy now, Pete. I think it would just be interesting for for our our viewers just to know what what does your kind of day look like, Pete, in terms of how you keep yourself kind of motivated and and, and 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 what your kind of working uh, schedule looks like i get up fairly early because i always got got up early to go to um the training ground um i was at the training ground uh in, certainly in my latter years at the football club for, for quarter to seven most mornings and i'd go in the gym um before before work started i just find it was a great way of um energizing my mind for the one of a better way of saying it um so I get up fairly early, have breakfast early. Um, I have a little exercise regime that I do at home here. You've got to do it, Ali. You know, I keep telling myself I've got to do it, plain and simple. So I do it, you know, I hurt myself daily. Um, and then I set to for, for my work programme. And a lot of the stuff is now um, is webinar-based. It's what we're doing now. Previously, it used to be speaking at conferences or meeting people or going in to see clients. I'm now in the process, as you well know, I've written a book. So what's coming off that book is not just a set of videos, but what I call a set of programs that people are able to buy. So what follows the book, if you like, is the why and the how of what's in the book. So why these things are important and how you can do it, not how you must do it, but how you can do it. The one of a better way of saying it, because I was very fortunate to work in a mega high performance environment for a minimum of 10 years. We, our record was sensational, to be honest. And everybody in football knows that. So I'm lucky in that respect. It taught me so much. Um, I write articles for people. 
Um, I do interviews like this, which, by the way, I love doing. I'm happy to give back. Um, and I don't keep, I'm not precious about what I have. I'm not bothered about that. I'm really not. If somebody wants something, give me a call, send me an email, whatever that might be, and I'm happy to do that. Um, so I have a fairly full day. Fridays, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit slack. I find the golf course. So I work out I'm going to lose a couple of golf balls just for a day and get emotionally out of control for 18 holes, which is about, call it three and a half hours, you know, so um, and how to keep hold of a golf club without lobbing it down a fairway. And everybody who's a golfer on this call will know exactly how I feel about that. Um, so I have a very, very full working day ordinarily. Oh, thanks, Pete. I just want to I just want to end and put you on the spot. Who, who's going to win the Premier League uh, this year, Pete? I'm going to say Liverpool, mate. I think their standards are outstanding at this moment in time. OK. And the Champions League? Oh, now you're asking me. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a British club yet. I think, obviously, I think, I think Manchester City at this moment in time have got a little bit of rebuilding to do. Um, as an outsider looking in, and I'm now a supporter, if you like, I'm seeing something that I think they they probably feel themselves they need to add, shall we say, to the cake mixture to make it a better mixture. Um, I think Liverpool have got the best chance from this country, but I see it going to a continental club. Bayern Munich won it last year, and I think they're the best team in Europe at the moment. Thanks, Pete. Um, I just want to, um, yeah, you know, give you an opportunity to say how can people kind of get get in touch with you and uh, access uh, first team. Um, they can contact me. Certainly, um, I'm happy to give my my, my phone number and um, my email is pete at first-team.net. And first is the word F-I-R-S-T. Um, they can contact me on my Twitter handle. So they just put uh, Peter Lowe into first team into Twitter. They'll get hold of me on that. Or, of course, get hold of me on my LinkedIn page. Great way of contacting me. Thank you uh, for your time today, Pete. Um, a really fascinating conversation. Just want to say, if, if you if you had a final word um, to our viewers, Pete. Yeah, happy to say this. You know what? Um, life at the moment is full of knocks and kicks and knock you down and you've got to get up. It's not about being knocked down, as they say. Excuse me, using the boxing puns. It really isn't. Um, if you want to look at what is a fantastic way of getting back up again, Go to one of the Rocky films and see the fantastic speech that he gives to his son. It's awesome. That's about life as far as I'm concerned. It's not about getting knocked down. It's about how many times you can get back up and keep driving forward. You've got to, you've got to manage the obstacles to, to your success, and there are many. Okay? Be driven. Be confident. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not good enough to do something. You know, so going back very briefly to my school days, I had a history lecturer that told me, can't use the exact phrase he gave me, by the way, because I'm on air. Um, but he actually basically said, I wouldn't pass my history A-level as long as I had a hole in whatever it might be. And I passed my history A-level and waved my certificate to him on the day that I got it given to me. And that taught me a huge lesson. Never give up. Never, never, never give up are the profound words of Winston Churchill many, many years ago. And I follow that adage, never give up.